Thank you. Okay, I'm going to move that. Am I good up there? Okay. Uh, well, today's a special day uh, for me to be able to have the honor to preach before you today. Uh, 33 years ago, I was dedicated here at this church, and I'm sure my parents at that time didn't think that one day I'd be moving overseas or coming back here to preach, but yeah, that, that happened 33 years ago, and today also is a special day. Uh, 14 years ago was the day that my grandfather died, uh, Fred Schwamm, who many of you know. Uh, just the other day, Sid Williams came up to me and said, oh, I, I miss him so much, so this special day. And Pastor Masserano used to keep a pair of shoes in this pulpit as a reminder just of service. After my grandfather retired, he wanted to give his time to the church, and he he did so for many years. Um, you know, this church, New Village, you guys have really supported us over the years. You've sent us cards letting us know that you're praying for us and loving on us and just coming here today and people asking about different people that are dear to our hearts in Bangladesh and asking about them today. Just It really means a lot to us. And so just want to say thank you and for your care and love for us. Um, and finally, just today, we're going to talk about Psalm 23. And this is a psalm that I know many of you would know. Um, it's a psalm that has impacted me a lot in the last year, a difficult year for us in Bangladesh, as we saw all of our teammates leave the city that we've been in, and now Amber and I being alone in, in our city. Um, it was really this, this passage and this idea of God's faithfulness and continuing to be there for us always that kind of carried me through a very difficult time. So I'm going to later on also mention two books that were helpful to me um, that, that God used to show me a new aspect of himself, something I needed to learn. So we're going to look today, like I said, at Psalm 23. Um, I also want to discuss some reasons why we tend to think that these kind of passages are not for us, that we, we tend to think that that's too good to be true, that I can live a life with no wants or no, uh, I can live a life where I don't fear any evil. So I want to look at kind of what, what are some things that we believe that are actually just lies. But God really is, it's a part of his job to be our shepherd, but I also think it's his pleasure to care for us and to protect us. I want to read just a quote by Dallas Word. He's a Christian author. He says this, This world is a perfectly good and safe place for anybody, no matter the circumstances, if they've placed their lives in the hands of Jesus and his Father. So let me commit this time to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're all weak and we need your help, and so I pray this passage would speak new life to us today to give us encouragement to view you rightly, and to just repent of the areas that we are weak in faith, Lord. Thank you that you are our shepherd. Help us to be good sheep following you. Amen. So I'll read now from Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your uh, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. 
my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you've probably heard this psalm before. Maybe you've heard it in a hospital room or moments of crisis or at a funeral, a gravesite. Or maybe you even heard it in a rap song, Gangster's Paradise, by Coolio in the 1990s. Maybe some of you have. Perhaps it's one of those chapters that we're all supposed to affirm, but in the busyness of life, we kind of find us putting these verses on the walls and in our church buildings, but not hiding them in our hearts. It can seem really disconnected from much of our life, a life without fear, Is God really trying to make promises that he can't commit and fulfill? Does he actually want to give you and me true rest? I believe that he does. And contentment and battling for joy is a worldwide battle. I see this in Bangladesh, where I've been for seven years, and I see it here. I really don't see, though, much of a difference between the average amount of contentment that a Bangladeshi has, who doesn't have nearly as much as the average American, But I do believe that Christians on the whole should be more content because now we've had our eyes open to spiritual things and we can see clearly. But sometimes we don't. And even though we're given the Holy Spirit, we can still struggle to believe that God is good in everything. But I do believe that as we walk more with Christ, the trials, the valleys we go through in life will become more and more easy because we're now accustomed to obeying him. We're now accustomed to trusting in him. But I do believe that sometimes we think that God is like the senior citizen that's aloof in the cosmos. He's not able to come into my daily moment when I'm stressed out or going through a difficult time. The Bible gives us two people to look up to, David and Paul. And we see them saying some, some things that are just out of this world. And I think sometimes we, dis- we think, oh, well that's, well, that's what Paul could say or David could say, but I can't get there. Look at Paul's words in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Paul said, I learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need, and I know what it's like to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things to him who gives me strength. And a few verses later, he said, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ. But I'm convinced that Paul and David weren't people that just automatically had this trust in God that was, that was so deep. They had to actually take steps to build that trust, just like anyone who does strength conditioning. You don't just become a professional bodybuilder in one day. It takes a long time to get there. So what are some of the reasons why we have this struggle, even for many of us who've been Christians for a while? I'm just going to give you several reasons that I can think of, so five reasons that I think we struggle to even believe that God is this good on a regular day-in, day-out basis. The first one is that I think there are times when we're just not obeying him. Uh, This could be because we're living in a double life as hypocrites, or it could just be that we're immature in our faith or need to grow in obeying him. But we can't have one foot in the door and one foot out the door, right? Matthew 6, 24 says, Nobody can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You can't serve both God and money. And choosing to obey him is submitting our will to him, saying, actually, God, you know better than me in this situation, and I'm going to do what you say. It's humbling, but it's good. People who don't obey God, they can't have this close walk with him, right? They can't experience him as their shepherd. The second reason I think we struggle to believe God is this good is because Satan is always trying to deceive us, right? The first words of Satan from the Bible in Genesis 3, 1, just think, what, what do you think are the first words Satan said? It was, did God really say, did he really say you shouldn't eat from the tree in the garden? Think of the sting in that question. I mean, for those of you who are married, what if I just said, uh, Doreen, did Fred really say? It would be like I'm questioning his integrity, right? I'm questioning his ability to be truthful. But Satan, uh, Jesus said that Satan's a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't hold to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he's just speaking his native language. He is a father. He is a liar and the father of lies. But his questions sometimes seem really good and really true. What about this question that Satan, I'm sure you might have heard him say, did God really say that he'd care for New Village when Pastor Mark leaves? Did he really say he'd care for you when your brother or your mother died? Did he really say that your past can be redeemed? Or did he really say that you have the power now to say no to sin? Right? Those questions have just a hint of truth in it, in a way, because we, we almost don't want to believe that God is as good as he says. But what's the ability to fight those questions is to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ, like Paul said. But unfortunately, we have a tendency to not take this very serious. It's so easy to buy into the lie that Satan has for us. My third reason why we struggle to believe that this passage is not for us is because sometimes we actually don't want to believe that God is as good as the Bible says he is. That might sound to some of you pretty crazy, but if we actually believed what the Bible said, we wouldn't struggle with certain things, right? You might believe in the core tenets of the gospel, but you might ha not have a close walk with him, or you don't know how to hear from God in prayer, or you're not able to take comfort in trials by his presence. I really don't like to oversimplify these kind of profound things, but I think the answer is unassuming. God says, if we seek him, if we honestly seek him, we'll find him. We will get all of him. It says in Deuteronomy 4.29, If you seek the Lord your God, you will find him, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your mind. But the question is, do you really want to find him? Do we really want to find him? Do we want all of God or some of God or parts of him? He is definitely a God to be feared, but he's a God full of love and compassion too. The fourth reason why I think that we struggle with believing these kind of things, like Psalm 23 says, is that we are, we're needing to go deeper in our trust of him. We're needing to grow deeper in our character development, right? It's like I said earlier, it's like strength building. And a year ago, I started dieting more. I started lifting weights, increasing my protein. And I, I'm still where I'm at now. I didn't see instant uh, results. I'm seeing day by day slowly kind of uh, pictures of me growing in that. And I think the same is true with our trust in God, right? 
Unless we go through these trials of life or suffering, we're always going to have an infant-like trust in him, and our character is going to be weak and, and puny, you could say. right? But God says that sometimes he disciplines us so that we grow in our holiness. In Hebrews 12, 10 to 11, it says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That last phrase to me is so important. If you've been trained by the discipline, then you can see a harvest of righteousness and peace. But oftentimes we get hit hard, we get whacked upside the head, and we don't actually pay attention. What is God trying to teach me here? But Job, when he was being uh, hammered by, by trial, he said, though he slay me, but I will still hope in him. Right? In the pain of life, we're told to cast our anxiety to God because he loves and cares for us. And Psalm 46, 1-3, David said this, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Even if all of that happened, I will run to him, is what David was saying. Those are hard things to do, right? They're not easy, but he wants us to. Okay, the last one is I just think that we oftentimes, especially as Americans, we have this allergy to pain and suffering. So atheists, a common argument they have when it comes to not believing in God is this. If God was loving and kind, then why would he allow suffering to happen, right? Christians can also, I think, believe this too, when actually the, the t we're in the tough moments of life. Commonly, we just think, well, pain is bad, Right? We should avoid pain at all circum for all circum in all circumstances. But it's not true. Pain can produce beautiful things. Let me give you two examples. I have a three-year-old daughter, and she doesn't like to eat vegetables. Right? She likes to eat meat, chips, and candy, like most three-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds, right? <laughs> but when, she, when I put the green things on her plate, She'll avoid that and go for everything else, but no matter how painful it is to take that piece of broccoli and swallow it, it's good for her, right? Even though she's thinking it's painful, it's good. Another example is childbirth, right? And I've heard that giving birth is not an easy thing. But I think that most moms would say, probably within a few minutes or hours after giving birth, that it was worth it. I remember when we had our, our first daughter, Hadassah, it was obviously difficult, the childbirth for my wife. But then within a few minutes, Amber was looking at her and wanting to hold her and cuddle her, and it was all worth it. Okay, so I've spent some time explaining why I think these, this psalm is actually a difficult thing for us to believe in. Not just this, but other passages in the Bible that talk about God's goodness. And maybe there's something there that you can take and look at and examine in your own heart and life, uh, something you personally need to work through in order to, to be able to experience God at a deeper level. Now I'm going to look at this just before we get to the actual passage, what, what did the Bible talk about with sheep and shepherds? So David lived about 3,000 years ago, and he was a shepherd before he became a king. 
And today in America, we don't see too many shepherds. It's kind of an archaic thing to us here. In Bangladesh, I, I do see some from time to time when I'm out in the villages. And one thing that I notice about shepherds is they're always on, on a task, right? Because they have a herd of animals they can't just let go. Like picture parents, right? You're always like in the crowd. You always got to pay attention. Where's my kid? Where's my kid? And then eventually you lose the battle. The kid runs off and you can't ever find him. But a good shepherd is not like that, right? Um, shepherds are always trying to find food. They're trying to find water. They're trying to find shelter for their sheep. Uh, they, the ones I've seen in Bangladesh, they usually have dark, leathery skin because they're always outdoors. They're skinny. They have dirty clothes on because they're working hard to protect their sheep. It's a tiring job. It's not a job I would like to have. But their reputation depends on how good they are at caring for their sheep, right? If you have a shepherd that loses too many sheep or can't protect them, he's going to be out of a job, right? You're going to need to find someone that can actually do the job well. But if a sheep was lost, the shepherd would have to do two things. They'd have to go after the sheep, keeping the others safe in the meantime, maybe going on a dangerous path, maybe fighting off a predator or whatnot. And then they'd have to actually bring the sheep back. If the sheep was hurt or injured, they'd have to carry it all the way back home so that it could be protected. There would be thieves, predators, maybe a dust storm, or some like environmental hazard that made it difficult to be able to bring it back. And the shepherd is really the only defense for a sheep. Right, I was thinking, is there any such thing as a dangerous sheep out there? And there was a movie a few years ago, Zootopia, right? There was a little conniving sheep in that, in that movie. But outside of movies, sheep don't bite really hard. They're not able to outrun people. They're, they're very just docile creatures. So the Bible, how does it talk about sheep and shepherds? Well, in the, is in the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as sheep several times. And there's several passages I'll just list quickly. In Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Zechariah 10, these all talk about Israel and God and their relationship as sheep and shepherd. The New Testament talks to us now about the good shepherd being Jesus. And some passages on this are Luke 15, Mark 6, Matthew 18, and John 10. And then God tells us now that he delegates this job of of pastoral care or shepherding from to within the local church in 1 Peter 5. Now, sheep and shepherds don't always have the most harmonious relationship. You can have a bad shepherd or you can have bad sheep. Um, and God tells us in the Old Testament passages that he was watching those instances where people were abused by bad shepherds and he would bring retribution there. But sheep also can be equally at fault, and they might not follow the leaders that they're supposed to. And if that's the case, sometimes they get in trouble, and they get hurt. And in Jesus, he tells us that he's the one who goes after those lost sheep in Luke 15. He's showing us his redemptive love. Okay, now your Bible that's warm on your lap, you can actually look at it in Psalm 23. So we'll take a look now at the passage here. So the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. In a world today where we're constantly bombarded by messages that tell us, buy this new thing, you need that. Or when we're having conversations with our friends, sometimes we hear, 
oh man, they just remodeled their kitchen, or they just got their kids this toy, or their kids are now going to that school. Something in us oftentimes tells us, oh, I'm missing something. So it seems archaic or overly simplistic to actually say that God is enough for you. He's going to provide everything you need. Is this something that is too simple that the Bible is missing the boat on? I don't think so. Let's look in Psalm, I'll just read quickly some verses. Psalm 34 also says that God will provide for us. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord should not lack any good thing. Psalm 36, 7 to 8. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. John 10.10, as was read earlier, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And in Matthew 6, 25 to 33, Jesus was telling the, the, the people in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about what's on your body or what you're going to drink or what you're going to eat. Take a look at the birds of the air. Look at how I provide for them. They don't have to do anything. I care for them. Look at the, the lilies of the field. They're, they can't even compare with how beautiful, or, sorry, Solomon's beauty can't even compare with how beautiful they are. But I care for them. Don't worry about these kind of things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these will be given to you. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of its own. Each day has enough trouble. God promises to meet our needs. He cares for little birds and flowers, and he tells us we're so much more valuable than them. If we truly digest these words, we would be some of the most joyful and content people around. But you might say, oh, David can say those kind of things, but how could I say those things? David was special. He was anointed by God. I'm not like David. Well, not this David. Different David. But what did, what did David have going for him that, that is unique? David was a man that, even though he sinned and did terrible things, he repented and he turned his heart towards God and he opened himself up to him. He made himself vulnerable to God. But David's life wasn't easy, right? He was shunned by his family when he was younger. He was in the, uh, in the presence of King Saul who threw spears at him and tried to kill him. He had to hide in caves. And even when he had his moments where he could have gotten revenge on King Saul, right? Remember those stories? He didn't. He chose not to do that, to not uh, inflict violence on others. And he had family conflict. His own two sons, they hated each other, and one even killed the other. But in pain, David, David cried out to the Lord and realized that God met his needs. Now, some of you might not have, uh, you might have your basic needs met, and you have kind of the reverse problem. You think, I don't have any needs. And you have a huge amount of discretionary income, and you're always searching for things to buy that might make you feel better. And I'm not saying if you have discretionary income, that's bad. I'm saying that it could lead to a temptation. For Let me give you an example. Your family needs a car, okay? And you decide, we need to have this kind of car, and it'll be good for us. And instead of buying the, the brand new $50,000 car, you decide, you know what? I'm going to come back a little, I'm going to buy a used one that's about half the price, 
And the rest of the money, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to the local church. I'm going to give it to build God's kingdom. When you do that, you're saying this. You're saying, God, I trust that even though I want something, that I'll, take, I'll lower myself, I'll humble myself in order to build your kingdom. As a step of trust in you, these are the kind of things that would be wonderful to see happen with, amongst us. But it's too easy to feel like I need the next best thing. And it's a slippery slope we can all go on. And I would just caution you to pray and seek God's will with what to do with your finances if you're blessed with extra. In verse 2 and 3, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul, and he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. So like a good shepherd, God is providing rest that we long for, right? We're all searching for rest and peace and stability. To me, the iconic Facebook picture is when someone kind of zooms out and takes a picture of their feet by the beach or a fireplace or maybe even a picture of their Bible and a cup of coffee. What are they showing in those pictures? They're showing a longing for rest, for peace and just, just contentment. But oftentimes those moments are fleeting. If you're a parent, especially they're fleeting because the second the kids wake up or need this or that, uh, peace, uh, peace is thrown out the window. But instead, God can provide this for us, not only for our future after death, but even today. So this verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This idea, he makes me lie down. One of the commentators I read says, actually, it's kind of a bad translation. It should be said, actually, he settles me down. He calms me down. And the reason why he says that is because sheep actually can't be made, you can't tell a sheep, sit down, or like you would to a dog. You can't tell a sheep, lie down. When is a sheep going to actually sit down? When will they lie down? When their belly's full, when they feel safe, that's when they will lie down. And that's what God is saying. David is saying that God is the one who actually says to, is capable of saying, Michael, kind of be, set, be settled. I can settle you. Nothing else can. So in Israel, there's only green grass about three months out of the year. The rest of the year, the shepherd has to take his sheep to go searching for grass, right? And uh, sometimes in the midst of those searches, the shep- everyone would get thirsty, and the shepherd would have to stop at a well. And Kenneth Bailey, what he says is that it's kind of common practice. A number of shepherds gather. You have a mixing of sheep. Everything's kind of all messy, so to speak. And when a shepherd just decides that, okay, it's time to go, He'll give his distinct call, and then all the sheep will rise up that know that call and kind of go back and separate themselves to follow him, right? So when, when the sheep feel that they can trust their shepherd, they're able to go and follow him. And that picture is listed also for us in John 10:27, when Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Following him settles us. And that's what God is saying, that he provides that for us. Another interesting thing is that sheep, they're afraid to drink if there's moving water. So what a shepherd would have to do is take, uh, maybe use his hands or a tool or something and dig out water so that, or dig out a trench so that the water can come in and be still. Otherwise, the sheep wouldn't drink. 
And God, David is telling us that this is what God does for us. He does anything to calm us, does everything it needs to calm us, to provide us with food and water that's necessary for us. Verse 3, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. So this is the idea that God brings us back as lost sheep onto the right path. Again, uh, the literal translation is not what's given in, in most of our Bibles. The literal translation here is, he brings me back, not he refreshes my soul. The idea is that the sheep has wandered away for whatever reason. Maybe it gets distracted. And the shepherd is obliged to go after that sheep. The reason is that if a sheep wanders away, they're going to go under a bush or under a, a rock, and then they're just going to start bleeding incessantly, right? And that's a clear call for, hey, predator, look, I'm right here. Come get me. So if the shepherd doesn't go quickly to get that sheep, the sheep will die, right? The sheep will either die of thirst, of hunger, or just be devoured by a predator. But instead of that, the shepherd would risk himself to go get the sheep. And if he's a good shepherd, he will do this because he loves the sheep and he's concerned about his reputation. Think about that. When the sheep comes back, the praise goes to the shepherd, not to the sheep, right? The praise goes to the shepherd. What a good, caring shepherd that person was, or in our case, the Lord is. In verse 4, God is with us in the midst of our trials. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So this is probably one of the most known and quoted verses outside of John 3.16. So is it possible that God could calm our fears, that he would be able to be with us in the most difficult moments of life? I wish it were true, but we can't avoid trials. They've happened to you in the past, and they will happen to you in the future. I can't protect you from that. Your spouse can't protect you from that. Nobody can. It will happen. So instead of the next trial us being caught off guard, it would seem that we should take steps to actually prepare our minds for being able to walk through these dark valleys better. There's actually a shepherd that wrote about an actual dark valley in the, on the Jerusalem to Jericho road, and I'll read some of his words. He says that there's an actual valley of the shadow of death in Palestine. Every shepherd knows it. It's a very narrow defile through a mountain range where the water often foams and roars, torn by jagged rocks, and the path plunges downward into a deep and narrow gorge of sheer precipices overhung by frowning sphinx-like battlements of rocks. This shepherd's got a good vocabulary, which almost touch overhead. Its side walls rise like the stone walls of a cathedral. The valley, so picture a valley five miles long, and at its 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 greatest length, only 12 feet, and some parts are so narrow that the sheep can't even turn around. That the only, now the thing about valleys is the valleys aren't the end, but it's some place that you have to go through in order to get to the other side. All right, think about the valleys of your life. I'm sure you didn't want that to be the end for you. Or think about the situation at New Village. It's a valley. It's not fun. But it's not the end. And God promises that he's with us even in these dark, challenging moments. Why? So David gives three reasons why he's comforted. One is God is with him. Two is his, and two and three are together. His rod and his staff were there to comfort him. 
So David in another passage talks about God, that he can't avoid God. He can't get away from God. Psalm 119, uh, 139, 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Wherever he goes, whatever situation he's in, God would be there with him. Jesus said, even to the end, even to the end of the age, I will be with you. Another, the, then the two uh, tangible things he says is, you have a rod and you have a staff, and they comfort me. So what is this rod? The rod was probably just like a two and a half foot instrument that was actually just used primarily as a weapon. And on the end of it, it would have iron pieces in it. And a shepherd could just hit something or hopefully kill something if it was attacking them. Right? In 1 Samuel 17, David talked about killing a lion. He probably killed the lion with such a weapon. And if the shepherd, a sheep saw that the shepherd had this, there could be comfort. Hey, I'm, uh, the, the shepherd's going to protect, protect me. Daddy's going to protect me. The staff would have been about five feet long with a crook in the end of it. And this was used to mainly bring a sheep back if it fell. So if the sheep fell off of a path, it would be, be the instrument used to pull it back onto the right path. Right? So these two instruments, the protection and the care, they were what was used to, to make David and other sheep, so to speak, be comforted in the midst of trials. Let me share a story. When uh, uh, four months ago in Bangladesh, we had a, a gathering on Christmas, and a few of the Muslim background believers that we know, they came to the gathering. There was only just a handful of us, but it was nice to celebrate. And the leader that is in our community, his name is, we call him Uncle, he invited a man named Hanif. And Hanif came, and Hanif looked very Islamic, very religious, um, the kind that you think are the people that do bad things that you see in the media. Well, anyways, Hanif came and he told his story about how he's coming to the Lord and learning to trust in Jesus. And I got together with him later and he came to our house. We started talking on the phone. Well, two weeks later, he called me and he said, um, Michael, I'm in this area in a hospital because my son is very ill. He has viral encephalitis and I don't think he's going to make it. And a few days later, he did die. And Hanif was devastated, like any parent would be. And he wanted me to come and visit him. Well, I wanted to also go visit him. But there was a lot of things that had happened that were making us kind of doubt. Just, is this guy real? Is he real in his faith or not? And this was a moment for me to trust in him. A lot of our local friends and believers say, don't go visit him alone. Uh, because they didn't know the situation we would be walking into. No one had known exactly where he lived or his family situation. But anyways, Amber and I decided we were gonna, I was going to go visit him by this upcoming Friday, and we are going to try and take a believer with, a local believer to go with me. And Friday came, we got the guy to go with me, and Amber and I just prayed. We didn't know what was going to happen that day. I was going to be traveling two hours to go visit him. I shared my GPS coordinates with Amber on WhatsApp, and we just trusted that God was going to protect me in the situation and, and use his rod and his staff. I visited with Hanif. It was a good time, obviously a sad time in the light that because his young son had just died. But I saw that God protected me with his uh, rod. 
that he kept me from any danger in that time and that he blessed the time and used his staff to comfort us in that time, comfort Hanif in that time. So these were the two instruments that a shepherd would have, a rod and a staff. And maybe as you think about your darkest moments, your most difficult times, maybe you can see how God protected it from getting worse and also how he made it better for you using his staff. Verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So in this verse, we see that God is acting like a host. He has prepared a feast for us. And in the Middle East and in South Asia, hosting people, giving them food, is, is just a part and parcel of culture. We see this in Bangladesh oftentimes. When we go to people's houses, there's so much food. We can't possibly eat it. We get our daily calorie intake in, uh, in one meal, just like at uh, Good Steer you get in Cheesy dream or something, whatever the name of that is, right? It's so much more than you can possibly handle. And then, what does that show? When a host does that, that kind of hospitality, it's showing honor to the guest, just like God is saying, I do that for my sheep. And it gives them fame. When we leave a person's house in Bangladesh, people will ask us, hey, how many kinds of meat did they serve you? And you know if you've gotten more than two kinds that chicken, duck, beef, or goat, you know, you've, you've been shown honor, right? So if I go to any of your houses, I want two or more meats. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just teasing there. Maybe that's why we didn't get any invites. No. <laughs> but this is happening in the presence of our enemies. This is what uh, David is saying. That, and, and this to me is so important that we understand that God is not primarily interested in removing these trials and sufferings that we have in our life. But he's more interested in us in those moments, seeing that we can be provided by him, that he is actually the one that nourishes us. We could lose our battle with health or our job, but if we understand and see and experience God in the midst of that, then the whole situation has been redeemed. And that's what I really believe based on this passage and that, that idea of in the presence of my enemies. The idea of being anointed with oil and having our cup overflow. Again, back to the imagery of the host and the, the guest. God is our, our host. We're feasting at his table and we see he's providing for us. Picture you're taking a, a, a sip of a glass and you take a sip and you put it down, and the waiter is there to fill it up immediately, to, to give you back what just was replenished, right? That's what God is intending. Even though our enemies are all around us, we're in a difficult situation, he's the one that provides for us, that you could say maybe even pampers us in those difficult times. So you might say to me, well, Michael, when I'm in a trial, I certainly don't feel like my cup is overflowing. I feel depleted and sucked dry. Okay, well, maybe just two things of practical advice would be one is we can't expect that God is going to meet our needs on our timetable. He might be refining us for whatever reason. And also, God is not responsible if someone else is making your life terrible, right? We shouldn't hold him responsible for that. The second is that truly being able to quiet ourselves and hear from him, this is something that takes a lot of practice and patience 
And it's a discipline I think that few of us have mastered. And I encourage you to continue to try to seek after him, to hear from him. Right? He does hear for us, hear and long to do that. If our children come to us and say, hey, daddy, I just fell and I just got hurt. Um, I have a boo-boo here on my head. Right? What caring parent would just dismiss them and say, oh, be quiet. I have, I'm busy with other things. Right? Any parent would show attention to their children. That's what Jesus told us that is God's heart for us. If you then know, if you then, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In the last verse 6, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. At the end of the day, when sheep have been out, they've eaten, they've drank their water, they need to come back to a safe place. But as they return, they could be followed by a predator, right? A wolf or a lion. But the picture here is that instead of a predator following them on the way back, it's God's goodness and love that are following them. And the word for love here in Hebrew is hesed. It's a covenant love, a love that God is faithful to fulfill. It's not fleeting. It's persistent of us. And our life with God does not begin when we die. It begins today. It begins in every moment here. David recognized that God was with him in his whole entire life. He said this in Psalm 9:10, Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who promise or forsaken those who seek you. So I don't believe that the Bible is just that this passage or the Bible is written just for us to look at and say, wow, David had a really nice relationship with God. Great for him. No, I believe that this is for us that we can today enter into his presence with God as our shepherd, right? Emmanuel, God with us. So just in conclusion, I just wanted to, I mentioned two books earlier that were helpful to me, and I'll just say them quickly. If you can't write it down fast enough, come up afterwards and talk to me. The Good Shepherd, the first one. The Good Shepherd is a thousand-year journey, journey from Psalm 23 to the New Testament. That's written by Kenneth Bailey. And the second was A Life Without Lack, Living in the Fullness of Psalm 23 by Dallas Willard. So today in 2019, we, can easily, we could understand that the shepherd will provide for our daily needs for us to keep us from evil. For those of you who've walked with God for many years, I'm sure that you've seen that happen in your own life. But the, the dangerous thing is this, that the knowledge of his constant presence isn't a given. His presence is a given, but not our knowledge and understanding of it. We need to open our eyes. We need to not fall into the lies that Satan said. I listed just before in the beginning, and maybe you can think about them, some reasons why we aren't experiencing this psalm. And there are these. If you're are you walking in obedience to God? Are you being deceived by Satan in any way? Are you actually wanting God to be as good as he is? Are you needing to trust him in something today? Lynn Austin, she said this, Decide to trust him for one little thing today, and before you know it, you'll find out he's so trustworthy, you'll be putting your whole life in his hands. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I admit my weakness in not trusting you in, in everything, or I have seasons where I trust in you more than others. 
And I ask, Lord, that you would grow my own faith in you, that you'd grow this church's faith in you to put everything on the table and say humbly, Lord, we, we don't get life without you. And we thank you, Jesus, for the life that you give us. There's no greater life than the one you give us. And there's no things in this world that we could buy or, or do that would fulfill us in the way that you do. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you are a good shepherd. And it doesn't depend on our ability, but you love us so much. That's just your characteristic. That's who you are. And we know you're going to keep doing it. I pray for this church. I pray you would and, uh, just embolden the faith of those who are here day in and day out, Lord. May you strengthen it so that it would be a great uh, lamp in this community, a light to uh, the, war- the community here and the nations, Father. We thank you for your love for us. Amen.